and welcome to Native Stories. Native Stories exists to share the voices of those connected to the land. Hello, Kako. My name is Noham, the founder of Native Stories. Um, we're here today with Jermaine Takta. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yes, you did. Okay. Uh, talking to us about his reservation in language in Warm Springs, Oregon. Uh, Jermaine, would you be so kind in introducing yourself to our Native Stories family, Ohana? Good evening, everyone. All this evening now. Um, my name is Jermaine Takta, and I'm from uh, enrolled member of the Confederate Tribes of Warm Springs in Central Oregon. Nice. Um, so we are gonna take everyone on a journey um, on the Pacific Northwest, in and Jermaine's gonna help and really basically be the brain behind this journey uh, of the area to current day um, with his tribe and, and and other, I guess, tribes that were in the Pacific Northwest. So um, starting, in, and we'll break this up into pre-treaty, treaty time, and, um, and current day. So starting at pre-treaty, um, can you describe the Pacific Northwest kind of what general era area is it now um and are there many other tribes that now live um on reservations and if so where are they yeah so the pacific um northwest is very diverse in different um indigenous communities called tribes today um so the part that I'm more familiar with is specifically the Columbia Plateau area. So that's going to be all of like central or really northern Oregon, northeast Oregon, and all of central and eastern Washington, as well as central Idaho. Those are the areas that I'm more, more familiar with. But um, as far as reservation goes here in Oregon, um, there are nine federally recognized tribes that are recognized by our federal government and only two of them um, still hold, have some portion of their reservation left in standing. Unfortunately, seven of the tribes were terminated at one point in Oregon and they've get, regained rec federal recognition in more recent years, like the 90s. Um, unfortunately, their um, reservations were not reinstated. So currently here in Oregon, there's nine tribes that are recognized by the federal government, but only two of us have reservations. As far as the Pacific Northwest goes in Washington, um, there are tribes, many, so many tribes in like Western Washington around like the, um, the Puget Sound area. However, I am unfamiliar with that area. So I really can't say much about that area. Um, but generally here in the Pacific Northwest, many of the reservations that we talk about are generally confederate tribes, meaning that more than one tribe was pushed onto that reservation by the government. Okay, let me make sure I get this right. There are nine tribes, uh, one reserve, two reservations in the Oregon central, uh, wait, central eastern Oregon area. Is that correct? Or there's nine tribes yeah. on the Warm Springs? So there are nine federally recognized tribes in Oregon, but each tribe is or each tribe is confederated. Um, what does that so mean? That means that there's a there's numerous tribes that are in the reservation. So, for example, my reservation, Warm Springs, there are three tribes there. There's the Warm Springs, the Wasco, and the Paiute. Um, they are very culturally different. However, because we were neighboring tribes, we were all pushed on to one central area. Mm -hmm. So in another example, in um, Western Oregon, the bi the biggest um, confederation would probably be Grand Round. At one point when the settlers had moved into the Willamette Valley of Oregon, um, they pushed a minimum of 25 tribes onto one reservation in Grand Round. And so now that they have become a confederate tribe, it's called Grand Round. However, that's not all of the different tribes that um, 
they have different names for themselves. And the only one that I'm familiar with are the Calipulia, the Clathamine, and the Tualatin, which is a different uh, sub-band of the Calipulia people. Mm. Um, and so a lot of the tribes, <clears throat> when you say tribe in the Pacific Northwest, it's referring to the confederation rather than a single tribe itself. Oh, okay. I thought it was for each of the different tribes that were pushed onto the reservation. Okay. Okay. Now I know, understand uh, the difference. Um, so uh, what were kind of the things that, you know, the cultural practices, and I'm thinking about what, what did people eat in the area? What was, um, you know, hunting and gathering? What were those things? Um, yes. Um, so the the a lot of the tribes on the Puget Sound, um, just because of their access to the ocean, they ate a lot of seafoods. However, where I'm from, um, the Warm Springs tribe lived on the southern Columbia Plateau area, which is pretty much a small portion of northern Oregon along the Columbia River. Um, and when I say the Columbia Plateau, that's, that, that's referred to as like a culture region. So there's the Warm Springs, there's the Yakima, there's the Palouse, there's the Wanapam, there's the Umatilla, there's the Cayuse, and there's the Nez Perce. These tribes are often identified as the Columbia Plateau culture because we're very similar. Um, the only difference is that our location as well as um, there's probably a dialect difference. Hmm. So for us, one of our main um, food staples would have been salmon because um, the Wyam band of the Warm Springs tribe, they lived traditionally at what we call Wyam. Um, it was known as Lila Falls, and which was a great white falls where the salmon would always jump to cross into their spawning areas. Hmm. And so because of the um, abundance of salmon that was in the area, that was a main staple for us. We would catch them. We would cook them fresh. We would dry them. We'd pound it into powder so that we can keep a lot of that throughout the year. Yeah. And, and then so the Wasco, the Wishram, and the Klickitat people, they are – they're – lived in the area, but they permanently lived along the Columbia River, whereas the Plateau um, culture tribes, they actually only were on the Columbia River during fishing season. Outside of that, we were generally away from the Columbia Plateau, or the Columbia River, gathering other foods. Where So the um, Wishram, the Klickitat, and the Wasco people lived permanently there, and they relied more on other fishes as well not the salmon they did a lot of sturgeon which is big in the area lamprey eels and whatnot and they would do a lot of trading with us for other foods that we would be out gathering we'd go out and um gather like edible roots um and so with that because the lila falls was so rich even before the arrivals of um so the arrivals of settlers this was actually a major trading area of the Pacific Northwest. So uh, every, twice a year during the spring and fall, many different tribes from all over would come to Salila Falls to trade. So we, um, because YM, the YM band of the Warm Springs people were the hosts uh, at Salilo, um, we had to maintain good friendships, relationships, or standing or whatever with different tribes. And so we had different tribes that we had good standings with. For example, the Klamath people were a very important trading partner for us because of the things that they brought to um, the Pacific Northwest, one being obsidian. Obsidian, you can't really find anywhere in the Pacific Northwest, but because of Klamath people are kind of at the borderline of the forest area and the Great Basin area, where they have different allies in the Paiute community, um, they had they would bring obsidian for us, and we would trade them something that, like the Nootka people from Vancouver Island, would bring um, dantelium shells, which was very very popular. And in fact, a lot of the coastal tribes of the Pacific Northwest, mainly around the Puget Sound area along the Washington coast and the Oregon coast, as well as some of the Chinook tribes of on the columbia river actually used dantelium shells as a form of currency oh so what was obsidian used for obsidian was used for a lot of the um like arrowheads for oh. spears for knives and whatnot i mean we had our own that were it was probably made out of bone mm -hmm. but obsidian was something that was a little bit easier to work with and lasted a little bit longer interesting 
Okay, so I um, you had described a band and a tribe, and I just want to go over the definition of these two things, and if you can explain, yeah, can you explain the difference? Yeah, that is always a very big question when it comes to tribal recognition. So a tribe is pretty much um, what a lot of, uh, I guess you can say, main society sees us as a tribal unit. Mm-hmm. However, in most different tribes, those tribes are going to have these small bands, which you can sometimes refer to as either clans or family groups. So for the Warm Springs, um, not including the Waspas or the Paiutes, but the Warm Springs, we had four different bands that um, which you would consider like family bands. So there was like the um, the Wyam people who lived at Slalo Falls. There was the Tanaino people who had numerous villages along the Columbia River um, from present day the Dells down to the confluence of the Deschutes River and Columbia River. Mm-hmm. And then we there was the Teich people who lived in present day Thai Valley, Oregon. Um, and then there was the Tukshpush um, people who primarily lived at the confluence of the Columbia River and John Day River and had numerous sites southwards on the John Day River as well. So what? those four bands, um, they were, they were, we call them bands because they were family bands. So the biggest one was probably about maybe 600 to 700 people. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's very, very small compared to a lot of the other tribal organizations. And so, um, I was thinking smaller than that, but that's a lot of people. Um, so would you have like a head of the band and then family unit heads? Is that how the government governance yeah so traditionally the warm springs people we didn't actually participate or we didn't use like the chief system just Mm -hmm. because these were family bands we generally looked up to our elders um people who had more experience that guided us but when the settlers arrived and they wanted the land and they wanted us to sign the treaties they kind of enforced the chief um, system onto us because they wouldn't oh. allow us to sign our treaty without having the chiefs. And so with that, each band kind of just chose the um, the male figure and their, their, the eldest male figure of their family to become that chief. And so now today on our reservation, um, that is still equally represented. And we have four different bloodlines, for, one from each band that uh, – is considered a chief and that kind of rotates out. So when one chief passes away, that goes to the next bloodline. So it's kind of like this process, this circular process that happens. Is it male or female as the heads of these families or does it matter? Um, general, traditionally it's uh, just males. I mean, we didn't really see a, like a political power shift at all between men and women because both, that both did a lot for the overall society. Mm-hmm. Um, however, just because of the chief system, um, they just decided to stay with the men. So mm-hmm. it's generally men who are chiefs. Okay. Moving on. I think, uh, so uh, again, what is your, the name of your tribe? So the, tr- are you um, the- I guess either. Yeah, so the um, tribe is called the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs, and today that is made up of the Warm Springs people, the four bands that I just talked about, the Wasco people who permanently lived on the Columbia River, and they had about three different bands as well, but I'm not familiar with their band names. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that one band, the main one that had the biggest um, population was the Dog River Band, which is the English name. I don't know what the... Hmm. Um, Waspa name was, and they lived permanently at the present site of Hood River, Oregon. Uh-huh. And then they had a cascade band that kind of lived between Hood River up around the um, present day Cascade Locks, Oregon area. And then there was the band that lived um, in the present day, the Dells, Oregon area. Interesting. So a lot of these major towns along the Columbia River were once. Um, villages of indigenous communities and then so the third tribe are the Paiutes who actually didn't arrive to on our reservation until the late later 1800s 
And they, there was just a small band of them. There's about 34, 36 of them that were put onto our reservation. Um, and then the Paiute, the, the Paiute tribal unit, I guess, themselves even have a vast amount of different bands throughout Southeast Oregon, Southern Idaho, our central and eastern Nevada down into like the Utah area. Yeah. That's the northern Paiutes. Then you have the southern Paiutes who are further south, like in the Arizona area. So, but you specifically, you are, you know, a Warm Springs Confederate tribe. Yeah. So my bloodline yeah. is, is actually, it's pretty mixed because, um, so through my father, his mother was um, mainly Warm Springs of the Tenaino band or the um, YM band mm. um, that his mother was, sorry, and his father was part of the Tenaino band of the Warm Springs. However, on my mother's side, I get a mixture of Wasco, Nez Perce, Warm Springs, and Paiute. Wow. So I'm kind of like all, I'm mixed in with all of those tribes, but Warm Springs is the more dominant blood. Or it's I'm more Warm Springs than anything else, just because of my dad's bloodline and um, my mom. My mom's mother was half Warm Springs, so yeah. So you, the language that you're learning, teaching, grew up in is Warm Springs. So I grew up. Uh, English is my first language, mm-hmm. um, but when I was younger, there were still a lot of elders who knew the language. And so I actually got the chance to hear my maternal grandmother speak the language often with her siblings. And so I grew up hearing it, um, but I wasn't actually producing it at the time. Mm. Um, and then it was after she, when she passed away that I noticed the absence of the language in, within my own family unit. And so then I did a master apprentice pr- um, program with a fluent speaker and advance my fluency in the language Interesting. okay all right we're moving on to um during the treaty um time and so who and when uh did outsiders come to i guess this warm springs area and ask for the treaty to be signed and what was the reason So in the Pacific Northwest in general, um, this area is going to be pretty broad. I don't know how far south this goes for, but I know specifically that um, for the Columbia Plateau area, um, we actually didn't see um, the the new settlers actually until Lewis and Clark in in the early 1800s. Lewis and Clark were the first um, settlers, um, non-Indigenous people that we saw come through the area and so actually if you research Lewis and Clark they would have a lot to say about this Lila Falls area so they were the first ones and after they um, made it back home back east to St. Louis um, they had kind of reported on what they their findings of the Columbia River the um, Pacific Ocean and whatnot and from my understanding yeah, a lot of people they were kind of excited about it but um after Lewis and Clark and their band or their party kind of left the area, uh, sickness came upon the Columbia Plateau area, specifically on the Nez Perce people. And so because the Nez Perce people actually created a great friendship with Lewis and Clark, they're the ones who helped Lewis and Clark um, find, guide their way down the Columbia River to Salilo Falls. And they gave them um, canoes and held their horses for them. So when the the sickness hit them, they actually sent a small band of I think like three or four men to find them in St. Louis. And their arrival and to east of the Mississippi really astonished everyone. And that's kind of when people got kind of excited about the the West. And so it was after that that people started coming to the area. Um, so in the early 1800s, maybe about, um, 1843, I want to say is when there was a bunch of immigrants that started passing through to the Willamette Valley area. And as word got out about the Willamette Valley, cause the Willamette Valley in Oregon is, um, a really great area to grow a lot of different things. And that's because the Kalapuya people actually lived in the Willamette Valley and they did annual burns throughout the land, making the land really fertile. Mm. 
And so when settlers found out about, or when they moved into the area and they found out how fertile that area was, it attracted more people to the West. And so around um, 1847, more and more um, immigrants or settlers started coming into the area. So by 1852, I think, I want to say there was like 10 to 13,000 people who were passing through in one year. And so that was in 1855, the Joe Palmer, who was a superintendent of the Oregon Territory then, got orders from the federal government that there was so much interest in the Pacific Northwest that it was time to get something, um, time to do something about the Indians, as they say. Hmm. And so 1855, the late 50s is pretty much the treaty signing era for the Pacific Northwest, many of the tribes. For the Columbia Plateau, the um, Umatilla, Yakima, Warm Springs, and Inez Purse, we all signed our treaties around 1855. And that was done at a council at um, near Slala, not at Slala Falls, but near Slala Falls. That what is now called the Dalles, Oregon. That was where Joel Palmer kind of held kind of like a council to notify all the different tribes what the federal government wanted and whatnot. So there was, I, so I'm not familiar with any of this, so there was a, um, a guy, Joe, <laughs> and, yeah. and the government of whom told him to go, who, who, how does this happen? Like, you can just, you know, raise, go write a letter to, it has to be some type of government, right? And then they go find someone to make this negotiation. How does, who's... Who's that? So when it comes to like um, reservations and the removal of Native Americans mm-hmm. here in the West, it was pretty harsh, but we didn't have anything like the many of the different indigenous tribes, indigenous communities in the East. When um, America or when European settlers first arrived to the East, they didn't give the option to many of the tribes to move elsewhere. Rather, they were aiming to, they wanted the land because they was, it was free land that no one owned because many indigenous communities don't believe in this idea of ownership. Right. So, be, so because no one actually owned this land, they saw it as free land. And so when they first arrived, it was free land to them and they just had to get rid of the, um, get rid of the people that were in the area. They weren't living there because they didn't own it. So they just need to get rid of them whether it was by killing them off or sending them off. So many of the Eastern tribes on the East Coast didn't have that. When it came to the Midwest area and the Great Plains area, it was a little bit different. The the government had tried to work with them, meaning they tried to sell the reservations to them, and um, there was a lot of conflict in that area. But when it came to the Pacific Northwest, um, many of the different tribes, our tribes aren't anywhere near the population of many of the tribes on the Great Plains and the Midwest and the Southwest areas. So when it came to that, more or less, because, again, we didn't own the land. We lived here, but we didn't own the land in the sense that um, we didn't have legal documents stating that we owned the land. So the um, Oregon Territory did have a superintendent named Joel Palmer, kind of like the person who oversaw the things that were going on in the area. Mm. And so when um, settlers started coming to the Willamette Valley and to the Puget Sound area, the federal government saw the value of having the Columbia River, the Puget Sound area, and the Willamette Valley. And so because we didn't right, we didn't legally own it, well, we did, but we didn't because we, we don't believe in ownership. Right. They yeah. took the land and they pretty much said, well, they're, they were selling it to us that they wanted to protect the Indian people from the settlers. Oh. Or rather, that was kind of a way of saying, the settlers want your land, so we need you to move someplace else. Right. Okay. So, yeah, the next question gets right into it. The positives and negatives of this, of this treaty. Um, how was that an influence and how has that influenced today? So I think what I hear obvious negatives is you 
everyone in this area, you now have to live in this small parcel of uh, parcel of land, and we're going to take the rest. Um, and I don't I don't know what the positive is. I guess you get something rather than nothing. I don't know. So what do you, what are <laughs> in your opinion? What are the positives of this treaty? So the, so the positive of our treaty was that. Um, Unlike many other reservations, they actually gave us a portion of the land that was actually usable. I mean, there's a lot of people that'll say we didn't want to live on a reservation. And it's true we didn't because we were being removed from our homelands. So the Warm Springs Reservation now sits kind of like in the um, northern part of the high desert. Mm -hmm. And most of the Warm Springs um, people were plateau people. So we were removed from that land. The Wasco people permanently lived on Columbia River. So they were removed from that area. However, the the, um, the area that Warm Springs is in is still pretty much the backyard of our homelands. We didn't permanently live in the area, but we often went to the area for food gathering purposes or other resources so on the Warm Springs Reservation, um, we actually is one of the areas where it's still rich in a lot of our traditional root digging areas, as well as we still have access to the Cascade Mountains to go berry picking in the summertime for our traditional berries. We have access to a lot of the other natural resources that we use, such as tulies we use to make our um, tule mat teepees with, our beds with, and it's also the stuff we bury our dead in. But as well as another area that was very valuable to us is a place called Tauxi, which literally means place of Tauchs, which is a raw material that we would harvest and um, turn it into kind of like a string or thread that we made a lot of our baskets with and sewing stuff. Okay. And so, the, so the Warm Springs area is actually pretty rich in natural resources for us, mm-hmm. um, but also... We also still got to continue living our traditional way of life after the signing of the treaty. Right. Up until the boarding school era, then that changed. Oh, wait, it changed after? Yeah, so when we were put on the reservation, um, we were pretty much left alone in our early years. Um, and then it wasn't until um, about 1879, after the Bannock Wars, that 38 Paiutes were um, held prisoner of war at Fort Simcoe on the Yakima Reservation. Um, and then they were being transported back to the Burns Reservation in the middle of winter, but the snow was so bad that they were left on a reservation. So they're not part of our treaty, but we still treat them as kind of uh, like equals because they were still put onto our reservation by the federal government as well. But hmm. And so... <clears throat> And then that that's something totally different because for the longest time before settlers arrived, <laughs> the um, Warm Springs, a lot of the Columbia Plateau bands, the Warm Springs, the Cayuse, the Umatilla, were considered considered natural enemies of the Paiutes of Southeast Oregon. So that yeah. took a lot of transitioning. Um, <laughs> and actually, that from my knowledge, that. Um, I guess you can say maybe that rate, not necessarily a racism, but, but that dislike uh-huh. of each other kind of disappeared with my great grandparents' generation. Whereas, and, but that's because that's when the boarding school era arrived and everything changed during my grandparents' generation. So, okay. All right. So, um, we talked about the positives, the mm-hmm. fact that you're allowed to still do your, some, most of your cultural practices <clears throat> on the land that they provided. So I remember you said re- recently um, that uh, one of your practices were um, yeah, was kind of not taken away, but the land was actually decreased um, because yeah. the state sold. Yeah. So why? Yeah. It, it it seems like lots of positives, but these things come up that with uh, water and land rights that yeah, now so, changes the whole thing. Yeah. So when they said when we signed our treaty, the one of the main things that caught our attention was that was this this phrase that you can continue hunting, gathering, and your usual and custom areas. 
So they wanted us off of our out of our homeland and onto a reservation, which was generally the most undesired piece of land for the settlers. And so because of our area, it seems undesirable to farmers, but to foragers, um, people who gathered throughout the land, different resources, it was actually very rich. So when we signed the treaty, we were told that we can continue hunting, gathering in our usual custom areas, meaning we can continue going back to Saliva Falls to catch our salmon. We can continue going back out to present-day Shanico and Madras area to gather our roots. We can continue mm. hunting on the plateau area everywhere between the Dalles, Oregon and um, Thai Valley, Oregon. And so that was something that we wanted that we were being told that we can still live our lives the way we wanted to. We just have to live on a certain piece of land. And then so as more and more settlers started coming, um, the federal government started selling this land, making it the land private. And so today that is one of the um, negatives about our reservation is our, our treaty is that we can continue hunting and gathering our usual custom areas, but a big portion of our homelands, our ceded lands, are now privately owned and we can't gather in, in our usual and custom areas. So a lot of the plentiful root digging fields that we used to visit every year are now either A, they're on a private land where we can't, we're not allowed on their private land. Or B, it's not there anymore because farmers came over and they tilled everything out of there and now it's a crop field of some sort. Mm. Yeah. And then so the biggest the biggest blow for us was probably the um, flooding of Salala Falls. So because of the population of Oregon in general was increasing, um, we we still there were still some um, small portions of our um, bands that refused to leave the Columbia River and they continued staying at the Salila village of the Wyam people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the last chief that was at Salila, I mean, there's a chief there today, but the last chief that was there holding the more traditional um, ceremonies and living the traditional lifestyle was Chief Cooney Thompson or Tommy Thompson. And so it was during his time that. Um, we actually still had Salila Falls, but in the 50s, um, because of the population, the the government decided to put up some dams to create electricity sources. So when they put up these dams, they actually flooded out to Salila Falls. So Salila Falls is no longer there, and we can't. We can sell fish in the area, but the salmon is not as plentiful anymore. And so that was a big blow to not just the Warm Springs tribe, but the entire Pacific Northwest in general, because we've all had some history at Salila Falls due to the trading system before the settlers. But there was the Wishram people who lived permanently at Salila Falls. But on the north side, there was the Klickitat, you know, the entire Pacific Northwest was devastated by that. Wow. Again and again, that kind of goes back to we can't even gather right. our fish salmon there anymore because the um, dams flooded it out. Yeah, yeah. Practices. What was said in the treaty is basically being uh, dismissed because these other things are coming up, and nobody's. It seems like nobody is like considering them when they're selling off the land. They're just yeah. doing it. I don't. I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, but I don't know why that wouldn't be stopped. Um, okay, so we're gonna. I'm so warm springs. I was traveling from Portland to Bend, and I happened to stop at Warm Springs Museum, and mm-hmm. I don't remember the highway. So I want you to tell us how to get there from, from I guess, or what highway is it off of. So the museum at Warm Springs is located in the main community of the Warm Springs Reservation, but it's right off of Highway 26. Oh, I didn't so if that. you're um, coming from the Portland area, you just hop on 26 um, and go over Mount Hood. Right. Yeah. And um, so um, 
You can visit their uh, website, and we'll put it in the show notes in the description, museum at warmsprings.org. A lot of, not a lot of the information, but from um, visiting, I learned some of this stuff. You could see really cool um, tools and um, a, a lot more description of the story and actual, or pictures of, like, the treaty and the other things that went around um, that um uh, at at the museum, uh, they're open Tuesdays, Saturdays, nine a.m. to five p.m. and closed Sundays at Mondays. Uh, am I missing anything? And um, also, what is your role there? Yeah, so the museum at Warm Springs is actually a really, really great place to visit. The way that the museum is set up is actually meant to be more of a self-guiding tour. So you don't ever really need to schedule a tour of any site. You just go in and you pay the admission fee. And the way the museum is set up is there's recordings of elders talking about our history from the um, 80s and 90s. And the way that it's the design, it's designed so you can start before the reservation era. So it gives you information about the three different tribes before reservation era, our lifestyles, some of the ceremonies that are still important to us and we still practice today. Then it leads into reservation area, into boarding school era, into modern day. So the museum is actually a really, really great place to um, visit. Um, and my role for the last two summers, I was actually, I did an internship there where I was working in the archives. So my first summer there, I was working on digitizing a lot of the photos and um, cataloging them so that we can have them for future use, but also be able to provide them onto like a web portal so that all of the staff members can access them and not just the archivists. Yes. And Make it and usable. Yeah, and then so then the other portion that I recently was doing when you were visiting on my winter break, um, I was, um, we had switched me from one grant to a different grant, and I had started gathering some of the um, transcribed um, items from our archives and started translating them back into each scheme. So at one point when um, we had people, elders who were fluent in each scheme, they would tell stories and there there would be someone there of a younger generation that would translate into English. And for some of those documents, not all of the original the original recordings are available anymore. And so I w- was working on retranslating some of these stories back into the um, indigenous language, the Ichishkin language. What one and that was in the eighties and nineties they were recorded. So like yeah. Yeah, so with the museum, we get a, we get a lot of different donations, or we will purchase some um, artifacts from families. And so, during there was a time when um, language revitalization, the re- language revitalization movement started, when like the the Hawaiians and the Maori people kind of had a really good start in the eighties. And uh, around this time, a lot of indigenous communities, even on mainland, started noticing that their younger generations weren't speaking the language and the elders at that time, the fluent speakers had noticed that. And so it was like eighties and nineties for many different tribes where the revitalization of language and culture started appearing. And that's kind of where the museum at warm springs kind of stemmed from was that our elders noticed the absence of knowledge of our own history, our culture, and then definitely the absence of language speakers in the younger generations. Yeah. So at that time, there was a lot of different interviews that had happened, and we do have some of those recordings with the elders. However, we don't have the equipment yet to transfer them from reel-to-reel recordings into, like, a MP3 format or something. Yeah, digital format. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, I I thought the warrants—it was only $7 to get in. So yeah, uh, compared really to cheap. yeah, compared to other museums, it's really cheap, and it was just very personal and um, good group of people working there in the front, and uh, just a wealth of knowledge. And you know, it was, it was a fun little stopover too, just to check it out um, and learn. So uh, yeah, thank you for having that. Yeah. Um, so moving on to current day and kind of getting. little bit more about you and your interest in teaching the native language and 
basically what the question is where um how did you start on this path um and um why is it significant to you yeah so as i have previously mentioned that when i was growing up english was my first language but i spent enough time around my maternal grandmother who was fluent in language and her and her siblings would have conversations in language so I would hear it, but I never produced it back to them. Um, but also on my father's side of the family, um, his mother and his, her, uh, my paternal grandmother and her siblings were very um, highly, what would you say, involved in a lot of the traditional ceremonies that our tribe, the Warmstrings tribe at least, not the Confederate tribes, but the Warmstrings tribe um, did. So after the uh, border, uh, after the three different tribes moved on to the reservation, the Warm Springs um, culture language actually became the dominant language and culture. And so even today, the, there, um, there are some families that will still hold traditional Paiute and Wasco ceremonies, but most, most throughout the reservation, most of it is the Warm Springs, uh, the Columbia Plateau ceremonies that we do. So my my paternal grandmother and her siblings were highly involved in that. So I had the chance to kind of get a taste of that as well as I was younger. Um, so a lot of the ceremonies that I attended throughout my life, to be honest, I've never attended a funeral, like a Christian style funeral or a funeral oh. in a church or anything like that. I've never attended the white wedding dress tux, um, groom in a tuxedo type of wedding uh, all the weddings that I've attended have been more traditional and whatnot. So we still hold on to that because I was able to grow up with that. <clears throat> I started when I was in like the my high school and my early college years, I started to notice a decline in that, not necessarily in the ceremonies themselves, but a lack of participation from many of the community members, a lack of singers for all of our ceremonies. And so it was actually my maternal grandmother, before she passed away, her and her sister started encouraging me to get into that kind of lifestyle. I mean, they didn't push it on me, but they um, helped guide me down that road. And then so by the time okay. she passed away, I had enough knowledge of our songs and our ceremonies. Um, and but I wasn't actually fully producing a lot of the language yet. I can understand it, but I wasn't producing it. And then mm -hmm. so um, after my maternal grandmother passed away, I've noticed the kind of the absence of the, I guess you can say the elderness, the having the elder present mm -hmm. in our family to help guide us in certain things. And so that's when I decided um, it wasn't until a few, a few years later that I finally got a job at Culture and Heritage in Warm Springs where I did a master apprentice program under the, an ANA grant that our tribe had applied for, um, where I worked with fluent speakers to help me produce the Ichishkin. I mean, I knew a lot of the basic words and uh, phrases. I knew basic, basic conversation. Um, it was just more or less learning how to express my opinions that I had problems with. And so. Yeah. Do you, do you now think in Ichiskin, or is do you think in English and translate? I just, I'm uh, that is a really good question. It depends on the type of the topic, because there are still some mm -hmm. topics that are really hard translating to Ichiskin. But generally, um, mm -hmm. so because I'm I'm aiming to help revitalize our language. Generally, if I'm taking notes, I try to do that in Ichiskin so that my brain can start naturally thinking in Ichiskin. Because when I first started producing language. Yeah. It was so hard for me to have like a face-to-face -face conversation because of the structure of our language. So Ichishkin is actually a polysynthetic language, which is hard for English speakers to learn because of the idea that one word can be a whole English sentence is extremely hard to comprehend. And mm. so I've decided mm -hmm. um, as of a couple of years ago that any notes that I take, if I can, I'm going to do it in Ichishkin to help advance right. my fluency. And so with oh. that, after, during the ANA grant that I was working on, I part of that included me actually teaching. So I actually had the chance to try and teach, or try my teaching skills. And I started teaching, um, the first class was, well, it was like a couple of days for the elementary school students. Um, 
but back then I was more focused on grammar than I was um, vocabulary. And so I was moved mm -hmm. to the high school where I got the chance to work with a couple of different high school classes for about a year and a half. And then so from there, I started teaching community classes to adult learners. And then when oh, I went wow. back to Portland State for my undergrad, um, I actually got the chance to meet with um, Yolanda, who is part of the multicultural department. She actually got a, um, got me a classroom so I can start teaching the um, different tribal members of the Portland community. So I taught at Portland State uh, community class. And then the following year, during my senior year, um, I had the chance to meet with the director of the Indi Indigenous Nation Studies program who liked what I was doing. And he's also a big um, advocate for his own language revitalization of the Lakota language. So um, working oh. with him and the program coordinator, Josh Powell. At no, at Portland State. Oh, oh yeah, Portland, Portland State. State. Okay. And so then we create, we got each Ishkeen as a class at Portland State for credits for an, an, an accredited wow. course. And then. That's crazy. Yeah, and then so every now and then when I'm in the Warm Springs area, I try to do other classes. Like this past summer, I worked with a community class where I took them out and showed them how to gather tule and make a tule mat that we still use for ceremonial purposes today. So wherever wow. I can, wherever What's, I can, I try to yeah. get some type of class in so that I'm still contributing somewhat to the revitalization of either our culture or our language. What is your so now you're at yeah now what yeah what's what so you already I, I I'm you know you have enough experience in teaching this language and now you're at U of O what is your I guess ultimate maybe I don't know if you want to call it ultimate goal because it always evolves but um, what are you looking at um, after you graduate in this fall or this spring this spring. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So when I was at Portland State, I did my undergrad. I got a Bachelor of Science in History and then a double minor in Anthropology and Indigenous Nation Studies. And at first, I actually didn't want to do work on my master's, but I figured, well, it wouldn't hurt to try and see what happened. So I only applied to the Language Teaching Studies master's program here at University of Oregon and surprisingly, I got in. They accepted me, and I was going to be starting my classes in June after graduation at Portland State, which were online classes for mm -hmm. the first summer. And so the master's program that I'm working on now is the language teaching studies, which is a subfield of linguistics, and more or less the um, goal of this course. So when you do a master's in linguistics, most universities only do the TESOL, which is teaching English as a second language. Second yeah, language. and so at Portland State, there was a linguist instructor who wanted me to stay there and do TESOL, but I didn't want to have to put in another two years of a foreign language. I wanted to teach my own indigenous language because that's what I've been doing. And so yeah. now I am doing this, and so the program is going to help me learn about the different methods and theories on teaching a language and some of the methods such as um, is grammar really that important in teaching a language do you really need to teach um, the meta language of linguistics to your students um how much interaction do those students need to have in my master project i'm hoping that it'll get accepted is to develop kind of like a an official curriculum for each scheme one as well as a textbook supplement, because that's something that we have a lot of authentic texts in Ichishkin and Warm Springs. Um, however, they're not really used because they the, the range between them is so, so vast that we either have like very, very short stories with very simple language for children, or we have these great big long phrases that's mm. hard for someone to in, um announce or even interpret so i want to create a textbook supplement that kind of bridges both of those together right uh, do you have a dictionary we do we do have a dictionary and so the ichishkin language itself there's actually about um three different dialects so i speak the warm springs ichishkin oh. which is the southern dialect and the yakima people actually call it the the, the river dialect 
and then the Yakma people have the, their dialect, and the Umatilla people have a different dialect. So we all speak Ichishkin, but our dialects are a little bit different, and our orthography, our writing style is definitely different. So in Warm Springs, our orthography, our writing system, um, when the elders decided to create an orthography for it, didn't want to make it complicated and decided to try to stick to as close as possible to English letters as possible. Whereas um, the Yakima and the Umatilla tribes, they wanted some, they wanted their, the language to be represented equally. So they created special symbols for certain sounds that don't exist in English. For any age or what's the age group you are, or does it matter? So for the way that I'm seeing it is um, I know that a lot of people believe that teaching younger children, like preschool, elementary school students, be the goal mm-hmm. because they're the ones who are going to be the future speakers and they um, their minds are still so flexible that they can pick up a language easily um, however my belief is that yeah that is true they do they can learn a language um, however right now the language that I want to teach is lacking on speakers so the dialect that I speak the Warm Springs dialect we probably have maybe about five to six fluent speakers left who are all over the age of 60. And then we have a handful, maybe about 10 to 15 first are remembered speakers. And these are people who grew up speaking the language as children, but stopped using it after the boarding school. So they can't, they don't produce it as freely, but they can, they can recognize the language. They know what you're saying in the language and they can sometimes respond in the language but they don't have the that fluency to where they can express their emotions or opinions or describe certain things. It's usually just basically yeah. remembering what they um, phrases from their childhood. And so because of that, we only have five fluent speakers. Um, teaching children, I believe that they do learn the language pretty well in their younger years. However, their language usage is limited to the classroom because the minute they go home, they they don't have anybody to use the language with. So my goal is to teach high school, college, young adult level, and that's because they have they will have the create the will to learn the language on their own time as well as incorporate it into their personal lives. Also, yeah. they are going to be are the future teachers for the program. They are also, they, whether it's officially in the program that I hope to develop in the school that I hopefully can get or within their own homes and teaching their own children. Wow. Yeah. Good idea. Yeah. Is it, I mean, it, it, here in Hawaii that we have thousands of speakers now, but before it, basically not as not as drastic as your situation but um i think also it's hard to sometimes motivate people to see the importance of a language uh i personally don't speak coin um well um uh, very beginner uh i see the importance but then you have to think oh what about time how do we make it the this easier and so my question to you is how what how you know and I was listening to somebody today basically saying you don't really think when you're speaking English you don't think about your grammar Um, maybe you think about your vocabulary but you kind of just say you know things in a certain way all the time and so although you might get a good grade on that class are you able to you know, use it in everyday life. And so I guess my question is, is there a way for people to learn a language and, and keep it going? Is there like a trick to this? Because I've yeah. tried <laughs> and I'm looking for a trick. Yeah, so, you know, that's really weird that you asked that because that's a lot of the different types of things that I'm currently learning about here at U of O. So currently this um, winter term, I'm actually enrolled in a pragmatics class where this is everything we're talking about the usage of a language versus the official use of a language, the sentences and utterances and whatnot. Um, But as far as like the Warm Springs Mm -hmm. Ichishkin, in Ichishkin in general, 
um, because our fluent speakers are all elders over the age of 60s, 70s, you know, 80s. Here at U of O, um, there's actually one elder here. Her name is Virginia Beaver, who got her PhD here at U of O. And she started teaching uh -huh. the Yakima dialect of Ichishkin here at U of O. And she has created a very great community of students. Um, wow. But there's a difference. So generally back at home on the reservations, the length because of the language um, usage is generally restricted to ceremonies because of the lack of speakers. So people can mm -hmm. only really hear the language being used or spoken amongst each other at a ceremony, a traditional ceremony. You don't hear it being spoken at the stores anymore. You don't hear it like at school or anything. And so that is one kind of like a uh, balance that I have to find because even in, so it's really weird. So in Warm Springs, um, there's kind of this idea of like a cross culture that had happened. So when my grandparents' generation ended up in the boarding school eras, they were told not to speak the indigenous language and to learn English. And so they did that They because they didn't want to be punished for speaking the indigenous language. However, after mm -hmm. they were done with school, my, such as my grandmother, one of my mentors, Arlita Roan, um, they needed jobs within the local community. So the local community, there were not at the time non-tribal members who owned these stores um, or services, but the local community still only a big portion of them didn't know English. So it was this gen my grandmother's generation that were hired as translators and so they were able to continue using the language even after the board of school. And those people today are fluent speakers. And the remembered speakers are the ones who um, probably didn't act or didn't get jobs in those areas. And so there's this um, cross culture where because we had translator that the culture of the Ichishkin language transferred over into our English. So even though um, there's an absence mm. of speakers in Warm Springs of the Ichishkin language. There's still a sense of that culture that still exists. So one of the big things that um, I've noticed after moving off the reservation is this idea of eye contact. It uh, almost seems huh. culturally inappropriate in Warm Springs to make eye contact. If you make eye contact when having a conversation, the person you're speaking with automatically becomes kind of uncomfortable. Or they think there's uh -huh. that there's something wrong, which is completely different in American society. But the other idea right. are the topics that are culturally appropriate. And so when you when you're revitalizing a language as something that people should probably keep in mind as what is culturally appropriate in your language. So one of the big things that I've kind of noticed um, after being here at U of O is this idea of greetings and um, icebreakers. So in Ichishkin, we don't have a general word for hello. Um, and actually, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not often someone's going to come up to you and greet you like good morning, good evening, um, just because that mm. culture is still present. And so generally, because we lived in a family band, it was a little bit more appropriate just to approach someone with a question rather than a greeting. Yeah. And so another thing, you know, considering the types of things that most foreign language classes or world language classes teaches is icebreakers, such as asking about the weather, which is something we never, ever really do, not in Ichishkin or in the Warm Springs community. It's just because it is what it is and you can't change it. But talking about <laughs> it's not going to make the rain disappear. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, he can look outside. What are you talking about? Why are you asking yeah, me? Yeah, like it is what it is. <laughs> and so that's something, you know, um, when in designing uh, a curriculum for each scheme, that's something I have to keep in mind is what is culturally appropriate, yeah, norms, what right? is culturally appropriate in each scheme, but also how much of that is still present in the, me the tribal members back at home. Because mm -hmm. I'm that's I actually my nephew was asking me he's a uh, about 13 now um he was asking me about what I was doing in college and I told him and a lot of it just flew over his head but he wanted to yeah. know exactly what I wanted to do and so he asked me what I would be teaching so then I started asking him questions about well what do you do when you talk with your friends at school do you guys talk about the weather 
And he thought about it and he said, no, we don't ever ask about the weather because if it's sunny, it's sunny. There's not anything we're going to say that's going to change it. And if it's snowing, well, we get to sleep all day. <laughs> so, so being able to, you know, talk to younger generations, even just about what feels normal to them, will help me to um, incorporate that into Design. my um, curriculum because it'll be their generation that I'll be teaching someday. Wow. I, I think we went through a lot. Uh, I learned a lot, obviously. And there are um, so many more things to learn in any language and how and how things are going for for each indigenous language or native language. Um, are you are there any projects that you want to make us aware of? Is there any resources you think people would be interested in? I'm I'm interested in this dictionary. Is it online? So the um, um so the Warm Springs dictionary is actually so that's another issue that we run into when it comes to this idea of language revitalization is that mm-hmm. a lot of the elders and fluent speakers are don't view the language as an option to the public, that it's more because it's been so traditional and ceremonially used that it should be confined to tribal members only. And so at, at, in Warm Springs, the dictionary is not available online and it's not even an official dictionary. It's in a dictionary that was created by some elders and a linguist from University of Oregon that brought this dictionary together and that's still just a bunch of typed up typewritten papers in a binder. Wow. And so the ANA grant or the um, National Science Foundation grant that our tribe has now is actually working at updating that and making it an official dictionary. So the Yakima dictionary though, on the other hand, that was done by Virginia Beaver, who's here at University of Oregon, who just turned, mm-hmm. I want to say ninety-eight years old this past year. Um, wow. Her dictionary is available online and it is available on Amazon as well. I think it's for like $50. And um, the good thing about these dictionaries is not only does it come with um, the English to Ichishkin, but it also comes with the Ichishkin to English. So if you can read Ichishkin or you can spell an Ichishkin, if you hear something, you can look up the Ichishkin word rather than the English word. But also it comes with a grip portion mm-hmm. like many dictionaries does but because it is a polysynthetic language at first it is does take a while to get used to but very very mm-hmm. helpful but here at U of O currently um I actually the my advisor here from my program um had asked me if I wanted to apply for a general and em- our graduate employee position which is working on the current um, second language acquisition certificate and possibly trying to find a way to include a language revitalization certificate. And so that's what I'm currently working on is I'm trying to find um, out a way to include that into the certificate program and make it available to not just U of O students, but other students that are searching for this type of certificate that are wanting to revitalize their own language and get them involved yeah. with this, but also make it available to graduate students. Do you know if it's available in other schools? Um, many different universities just do maybe. have some form of second language acquisition certificate, but it's just a certificate. Mm-hmm. So it's not, so, you know, mm-hmm. you don't even need a bachelor's or anything or an associate. It's just, right. if you want to work in that field, it's specialized for that. Um, but that I would be looking at trying to find a way to include classes to help people find ways to revitalize their language, like a lot of the topics we just talked about, like pragmatics and the. Right. Um, There's a yeah. lot of work. That's a lot of work, and we need. Yeah, more people. so I'm hoping that if I'm <laughs> successful at what I'm doing, that that will be available not next year, but like in another couple of years to the public. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Um, do you have any any remarks that? you'd like to say um, um well yeah. we covered a lot and i'm very thankful that you asked me and you know it was, it was really great that you um we ran into each other at the museum at warm spring um i guess just yeah. one thing like i said before um when what i'm talking about is mainly from the warm springs perspective that doesn't include the wasco or the paiute history on the on the warm springs reservation because again it is a confederated tribes um 
However, I'm more familiar with the Warm Springs history, the Warm Springs culture, and the Warm Springs Ichishkin dialect. Um, the Wasco history is different from the Warm Springs just by a little bit, um, and the Paiute history is definitely a lot different from the Warm Springs history. Um, and so when it comes to like language revitalization, we do have a culture and heritage program at Warm Springs that focuses on revitalizing all three languages. Um, we unfortunately do not yeah. have any more fluent Wasco speakers. Our last Wasco speaker, fluent speaker, passed away in 2012. Yeah, oh so um, as well. So the Wasco is the representative in um, the Warm Springs. There's also the Wishram and the Klickitat, who are very similar to them. That's in the Yakima, and they no longer have fluent speakers as well. So languages are literally dying. Well, linguists don't like to say dying anymore. They say dormant because you can oh. still revitalize the language. So I don't know if you've ever heard of the, um, is it the Miami or Miami language revitalization has been mm -hmm. their last speaker literally passed away in like the 1940s or 1950s. And so there is one mm -hmm. individual named Daryl Baldwin who decided that we need to revitalize this language. And so he actually, ironically, took texts written by Jesuits and started revitalizing his language. And because of the phylum, his, and within his phylum, this language family, there were other tribes who had fluent speakers. So he was able to work with them in trying to recreate this language. So oh, linguists, linguists okay. they say it's dormant, not dead. Yeah, a dead language is more okay. ancient languages, but... So we do, we so do have hope. people in Warm Springs that are um, working at creating new generation speakers of the Wasco language. Unfortunately, though, for the Paiutes, we, I don't think we have any Oregon Paiute speakers left. I think a lot of the different, because um, the, I think there's 14 bands of Paiutes that lived in Southeast Oregon. But I don't think there's any more speakers left of those dialects. So the dialect, uh, the Paiute dialects that are being spoken now, are generally teachers from like Owyhee area, and I don't know if that's in Nevada or Oregon. I think it's in Nevada, or like the Bishop area of California. So they're not Oregon dialects, but it is from the Paiute language. Mm. So I just want to, I just want to make see. it clear. A lot of what I had to say came from the Warm Springs perspective, and not the that didn't include the Wasco and Paiutes who are part of the Confederate tribes of Warm Springs as well. But we do have a culture and heritage department that is working at language revitalization in all three areas, and the museum at Warm Springs did a great job at recording the history of all three tribes. Awesome. I think, yeah, so we just want to, you know, encourage anybody that's driving through to pass, passing through can stop on over. Uh, we'll add this pin to the map so you know exactly where to stop. Uh, again, mahalo nui for sharing with us at Native Stories. If you, if any of uh, our listeners are out there uh, want to further connect with us, please do. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Just search for Native Stories or Our Native Stories. We are looking for more stories and, you know, language, culture, history, activism, uh, uh, so many topics out there. If you have any suggestions, please email us or contact us through any of our social media. You can email us at info at nativestories.org. Please download our mobile app and listen to us, or you can listen to us on um, most uh, streaming podcasts. If you found one we're not on, let us know at our email. Make sure to share with your ohana, your hoapili, and whoever else you want to share with. We pride ourselves on being your resource. So again, thank you for tuning in and have a good evening. Thank, thank you, you, Jermaine. Thank you for listening to us on Native Stories. If you have a story you would like us to tell or want to sponsor a future podcast, location story, or walking tour, please email us at info at nativestories.org.